In this episode of the Working Mama podcast, I speak with Georgie Dent, journalist, editor, speaker, and prominent advocate for parents, families, and women. She is a former lawyer and currently the executive director of The Parenthood, an independent for purpose advocacy organization that represents over 72,000 parents, carers, and allies around Australia. We chat about the motherhood penalty, the policies and support structures to support working parents and so much more. I absolutely loved my chat with Georgie and I hope you do too. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Working Mama podcast, a show that provides real world tips, tricks and advice to all working mamas on how they can have a career, family and hopefully one day break the glass ceiling. Welcome, Georgie Dent, to the Working Mama podcast. How's your day going so far? It is good. Thank you. I um, Yeah, it's already been productive, which is always good. Well, I'm very excited to have you on uh, the Working Mama podcast, and you're doing amazing work, definitely advocating for all working parents in Australia, which is amazing. So how would you best describe yourself for those people that actually don't somehow know you? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on. So my name is Georgie Dent. I have, I wear a few different hats. One of them is that I am a mum of three children. Um, We've got three girls that are aged 11, nine, and almost six. And my job is, I I am the executive director of an organisation called The Parenthood, which represents parents and carers and has really existed since 2013 to try and advance the kinds of policies that would make life better for families and children um, in Australia. So in my role running the parenthood, I do lots of media advocacy. So we work to sort of I speak to the media when they're talking about stories that impact families, but also we connect lots of our members with the media so that they can be case studies to sort of illustrate how these issues like really expensive um, early education and care or inaccessible early education and care to sort of show how those issues impact families. And then we also do, we we do a fair bit of research to also look into what are the policies and practices that sort of make the most amount of positive difference for families. We have got a membership of around just over 75,000 parents and carers um, around the country. In my sort of previous professional life, I've worked as a lawyer before becoming a journalist um, and I worked as a journalist for a long time and was pretty focused on issues relating to women. I was sort of interested in them professionally but then also having children of our own really sort of highlighted the way that the systems and structures that we have at the moment don't actually work that well um, for families but particularly not for mums. And so that's why being in a formal advocacy role for this organisation feels like a very natural progression from where I've been because I have been writing and reporting um, about these issues now for for over a decade. And I've also, um, I have written a book called Breaking Badly that was published in 2019. And that actually is very focused on mental health. Um, So it sort of outlines in quite a bit of detail what sort of led to me having a complete nervous breakdown at the age of 25 and then how I sort of rebuilt my life after that. So there are a few of my hats. I'm a writer, I'm a talker, I'm a mum, and I'm a very fierce advocate for working families. 
Wow, there's a lot in that, and and certainly it's it's great. But you're also walking the talk, and and certainly had a number of life experiences, even from yeah a nervous breakdown to you know being a mom and and wearing and even having career changes as well um, in in through that whole journey. So. Thank you so much. Really looking forward to today's chat. So we'll get into it. And we've all heard, and I know in your in the Parenthood Report, you talk about the term of the motherhood penalty. What is it and how do you think, you know, this impacts working mums? Yeah, so the motherhood penalty is a term that's kind of used globally to explain the phenomenon that occurs to women upon becoming a mother. And there are exceptions and depending on where you live and depending the kind of work that you do, there are lots of factors that will go into what the exact motherhood penalty is for you. Um, But in general terms, what we know, um, and I'll talk about Australia um, because that's where we are and that's I can talk about global examples, but we'll talk about Australia um, because it's particularly relevant, I think, and probably your audience will know that In Australia, we have got an incredible education system. We have had a situation for sort of almost two decades now where women have been graduating from university in sort of slightly higher numbers than men in in basically across fields. I mean, there are still some examples where there are more men graduating, but we don't have a skill shortage. We don't have women who are not educated incredibly well. We actually, Australia is the number one country in the world for female educational attainment. And that's because we educate girls incredibly well, girls and women. So it's in very general terms, you can probably say that men and women in Australia have quite similar life paths until the point at which they have a baby. So it's not uncommon, and I'm sure you would all be able to think about um, friends or families, that oftentimes when a couple meet and if they, you know, either get married or sort of move in together, they're often not in dissimilar positions in their working lives. Um, They might have the same degree. They might work for different companies, but it's not uncommon for them to be on a fairly similar track. But what we know happens is that when a baby comes along, mums in Australia start retreating from the workforce and they start to earn less and less money as the years go by. And that is effectively the motherhood penalty. So the price you pay for having a baby is that your earnings decline significantly. Now, if you're a dad, you actually get what is often called a sort of a dad dad bonus. And that is that after a man becomes a parent, men start to work and earn more than ever before. And that pattern sort of holds. And the reason that we have got this sort of big divergence that occurs for couples in Australia, even when they're Um, have got similar education and skill levels, even when they approach their family life as equals and they want to sort of share the care, they want to have a sort of an equitable arrangement of who does what, even when you've got families who want all of those things, the world that they live in doesn't actually support that. So the world that we live in, the workplaces that we have, the government policies that we have, they all send a very clear message that once a baby comes along, a mum's primary role is to be the caregiver and a dad's primary role is to be the breadwinner. Those labels don't actually 
necessarily suit all families. Now, there are some families where, where that is the choice that they make and it works really well for them and that's fantastic. But the reality is it's actually not a choice for families. And what I think that all parents in Australia deserve is the ability for them to decide what works for them, how they want to share the care, share the paid work, um, how they want to run their family. Um, and so the motherhood penalty is really a term that describes the, the, the penalty or the cost that women pay for having children. And it's, it's so true. And there's also not only that, you know, the primary carer part, but then also the perception and the bias against working mums, because generally they'll go back working part time. And so therefore there's the perception that they don't want a career, they don't want to progress and, and things like that. And there's more and more conversations that I'm having at the moment. They're saying, yes, we don't want to go back working 40, 50 hours a week, but we actually want to have our outputs so we actually might be just as productive working three days as someone working five um, but it's unfortunately the bias and the perception put on working mums oh you know you're and I've even had it said to me recently returning back into work after 12 months Matt like oh you're part-time you probably don't want to you know you know move up the ranks I'm like well just because I'm part-time what's to say that that's my lim- that's a limiting belief yes absolutely and I think that it's what is really frustrating is that oftentimes people are making assumptions about what other women want and what they don't want. Um, you know, I know that even before you have a child, for lots of women I know who I've spoken to, if when they're at the age where it looks like they might even think about getting married if they're in a long-term relationship, it's not uncommon for people around them to start sort of whether they say it out loud or they start thinking it is, oh, I wonder when, you know, she might be getting married soon, she'll probably have a baby. And then they're already put on a different track mm. um, before they've even actually had a baby. And then what we do know, and I don't think it's sort of talked about enough or I don't even know if it's known well enough, is that the extent to which mums are discriminated against in the workplace. So um, a research report that the Human Rights Commission did a couple of years ago showed that one in two mums, one in two, are discriminated, discriminated against either um, while they are on parental leave, um, in the first year they return to work or during their pregnancy. One in two. And that is reported discrimination. Um, I know that every time I, well, I, we, we lived overseas when we had our first daughter and that was the only mother's group that I joined just because of the way it worked out. But in my mother's group in the UK, of the eight of us, six were made redundant while we were on that, you know, in that so the, the first 12 months of our baby's lives. And when I got to Australia, I've had so many friends who've reported a similar experience with their mother's group that it's suddenly all these redundancies get made right at the point where, you know, you've had your children and these things are absolutely connected. And, you know, I think what we have to recognise is that the policies that we have and then the attitudes that those policies permit and promote, they all contribute to a situation where sometimes people like to frame it as women are choosing to step back. They <laughs> want to work part-time. When in reality, what's happening is they're being forced into a corner and the only options they have is to work two or three days a week. And oftentimes 
you know, what you said before is very true. A lot of working mums feel incredibly grateful to be, to have a three-day-a-week job. A lot of them are working a five-day-week load anyway. They're just getting paid considerably less for it and they're feeling grateful that someone's even employed them. And, and, and then they'll have people say to them or assume that's your choice. But yeah. nobody makes a choice in a vacuum. We make our choices in the context of the expectations around us. And Australia has not moved very far beyond the idea that mums are carers, dads are earners. You know, yeah. uh, what what other countries do really effectively is bridge that gap and say, actually, do you know what? Some dads want to be really engaged on the home front and maybe work less. Some mums might want to work more. And, and, you know, it's not uncommon in Germany, for example, a lot of parents who've got kids in primary school or below, both parents work four days a week. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually changing. It's, it's the, the patriarchal systems and, and the metaphors that we put around, well, what is a mom and what is a dad? And, and in Australia, it's, well, the mum cares, as you said, and the dad's the breadwinner. And then it's amazing how like I've actually spoken with uh, dads that have taken parental leave and then sometimes it's like, oh, that's so nice you're babysitting your child. And, and there's, they've said, no, I'm not babysitting my child. I'm actually being a dad and looking after them. So what we're seeing as the role of dads is actually going through that shift of actually saying, well, no, it doesn't have to be the mum that takes all the parental leave. You know, the dad mm. can do it as well. And the the dad can step up and as, as your research shows and there's many experiences, I even know a good friend of mine, her husband took three months leave because um, his firm allowed it and his, his view changed um, around looking after kids. He thought, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake, you know, nap times and things. He's like, geez, this is full on. I'm going back to work for a break. Yeah, exactly. And I think that like in the same way that the assumptions lots of us make about mums actually don't serve mums very well, the same can be said about the assumptions we have about dads. So this idea that dads are so inconsequential that their engagement in the home, their engagement with their children doesn't matter, it's actually wildly offensive um, because we know that when dads are engaged carers, it actually improves their own mental health it improves the well-being and mental health of their um, female partners. And it's actually much better for child development outcomes. So dads being engaged in the caring of children is literally a win-win-win. Everybody wins. Um, and yet we're still putting dads into a box that makes it really difficult for them to do that thing that they know would be really good for their family. And I think on one level, even when dads don't necessarily have the research, they know, and any father who has been fortunate enough to take some extended parental leave, so sort of beyond the standard two weeks that has been accepted for a long time, any dad I know that's taken that extended period of time has got that shift in paradigm that you just described, which is when you are in the home with a tiny baby or with a toddler or with both, you understand, recognise that your that there, there is an incredibly demanding, important job that happens in the home and that they can be part of it and that they, but we, we sort of, we, we, there's so much stigma attached that we don't even want them to have the chance to, to try, even though they want to and when they do, it's good for everyone. 
Oh, 100%. And also whenever I've surveyed people and, and generally in the, in the working mom community and things, the one, one of the biggest issues that always consistently comes up is for, the biggest challenges for working mums is about sharing the mental load. And that's just like we can overcome that by, you know, and dads actually want to help. They want to be a part of it. But as you say, it's the systems, the structures and the assumptions that are put on if they, you know, around what they are. And, and sometimes dads probably don't talk about it enough themselves about how much they actually want to because they're also scared of, well, I need to be the breadwinner. I need to still be seen and, and providing for my family. I know that when my husband and I were starting to have kids, he said, look, I don't want to be the whole breadwinner. Like what happens if I lost my job, then what happens to our family? And so we've always had very much a team mentality and approach to our kids and things like that. Yes, I'm the one that's taken a part-time role, partly also my choice, but I've also said like mentally, like right, once the kids are at school, that may change things. Uh, But yeah, it's one of those interesting discussions that there's also the, the fathers want to, but they don't necessarily have the systems, the structures, the support, and even, as you say, the assumptions around being able to do that compared to other countries overseas. Yeah, and that's one of the things that we know for sure is that when countries or employers offer dads a, a chance at decent parental leave, they take it. Mm. So, you know, we know that without there being a policy shift probably at an employer level but also a government level, we're not going to give permission to a a considerable cohort of dads to start getting the shift in attitudes and families and communities and workplaces. So that's sort of what I would describe as one of the systems changes is that we need to have a paid parental leave policy that actively encourages and accepts dads taking extended parental leave as the norm. And that's not to say that every single dad has to take it. Not every dad will want to take it, but I don't know very many families who wouldn't want the option of that being there. Yeah, I actually asked my husband the other week, I said, because he works in a a small business, and and I said to him, if you had the opportunity to take parental leave for both our boys, would you have taken it? And he said, yes. But unfortunately, he didn't, you know, wasn't given the opportunity. We didn't even apply for the two weeks leave because, you know, that's a minimum wage and, and things like that. So, again, the system doesn't even allow it. So, of all the parents, the dad's actually taking that leave, they're not even accessing it because, again, it's a, the minimum wage, uh, which doesn't recognise also that role as well. Yeah, and then there's also the sort of accessibility factor, which is any any person that's had any dealing with any sort of Centrelink interface will appreciate <laughs> the fact that it's very difficult. And so that's why there is a huge number, like a, the, the vast, vast majority of Australian dads do not take the leave they're entitled to through Centrelink because the process is so difficult that they're making the determination that two weeks at the minimum wage, it's just not worth it. But Um, You know, I can relate to that completely. So my husband works in health and he didn't have any um, extended parental leave offered to him with any of our children. But his younger brother, who works for a sort of bigger organisation, and he he was able to take three months of paid parental leave um, for one of their children. And my husband was really, really, he, you know, we had a conversation about it and it was actually quite emotional. He was like, you know, imagine what that would have felt like for our family to have had three months of him having the capacity to just be dad, you know, and, and um, 
my husband is a very, very engaged carer and he, he you know, the, the one of the other things that we know from the research is that the caring pattern that is set in the first year of a baby's life persists generally over the course of that child's life. Um, and when we had our first baby, we were actually living overseas and my husband was doing a master's degree. So he was studying. And so while he didn't have sort of paid parental leave, it was the first year of our daughter's life. He had so much more flexibility than he's ever had because he was studying. And so it was a different demand. And I know that our family dynamic was set because of that. Um, when we had our second, when we were back in Australia and we had our second daughter, you know, he, he, he got about five days leave and it was so difficult. The first year of her life was, it was so much more difficult because I had a toddler and a baby and I also I didn't have my partner around the way that I did the first time and you know I I it just it just made it so much more difficult and I don't know what our family would look like if we hadn't have sort of been through luck had that first experience where for us the default was we are co-parents and there is you know I'm not better at anything than he is genetically it wasn't as if they handed me the baby and I suddenly knew how to settle and feed and we were equally out of our depth and I just think that that gets missed and then that's the other thing about the sort of systems impact of paid parental leave it's you know the only way anyone gets comfortable with a newborn or with a toddler the only way to develop any sort of skill in that area is by doing it yeah And so when dads have got that two-week window and that's all they have and then they go back to work and they start working more hours, which we know is the pattern, it means they're missing out on the hours in the home, skilling up, learning, you know, so then when they are home on the weekend, it is much more difficult to sort of step in and and have the skills because it's the same with anything. You know, no one expects to become, you know, brilliant at a sport if you never practice. And if you just come in, you know, once a week for for two or three hours, it's going to be so much more difficult than if it's just something embedded in your everyday life. Um, And then that's where I think that gap between mums and dads, it just gets bigger and bigger. I've experienced my first, my husband, yeah, went back to work after two weeks or two, I think he had three weeks annual leave, so took annual leave. Um, and it was really, you know, went back and even, I think even after about probably eight, 12 months, my, uh, you know, he couldn't settle our son as well. And it was a bit of a challenge, but then second time round, he was home working from home because of the pandemic, um, lockdown here in Melbourne. So he's actually been around a lot more. So he was like experiencing. So if I had a day where screaming and, you know, unsettled early on the struggles of breastfeeding and also at home with a a two and a half year old and a, and a newborn, he understood and it could also come to the rescue a little bit um, of being able to do that. So in one way, I've actually been really thankful for, for the pandemic of him being able to work from home. But on the flip side, it's actually meant that he's developed a much better relationship with our second who is seeing him around. He's used to seeing him even just those five little minutes here and there throughout the day. It's actually made a big difference. He hasn't been able to be home all the time but certainly being able to um, engage and in, in, in that. So there, there's, yeah, so many stories and experiences of, of so many people, um, but yeah. also that role of fathers. And I think that that is probably some consistent feedback that one of the positive things about the pandemic has meant that in 
family homes where parents have had the ability, particularly dads have had the ability to work from home. They are suddenly around a lot more. There is the sort of incidental um, moments that you have when you don't have when you're in the office and your children are at school um, or at early learning because of that time together. And then because there were, you know, there were no, there was no commuting for a period of time, all of that, you know, there was a, a shift that I know personally, just a lot of, a lot of friends who had their first baby, I think they are the people who the pandemic was in a lot of ways kindest to because yeah. it meant they didn't have the isolation that so many mums have when when in non-pandemic times you had a baby and, you know, your husband might be home for two weeks and then he goes back to work and you're, you're left sort of stranded alone. And, you know, the days are just so long with a tiny baby and you're struggling sure to breastfeed are. or you're not sleeping. And so I think that, and I certainly know a lot of, um, my husband's friends talked about this, that they just really loved the time with their kids and they sort of really did have that, like what we talked about earlier, when you are home with the kids all day, you do start to appreciate the full experience of parenting. And when you do that, it does change the way, you know, you relate to your partner or, and the way you relate to your children because, yeah. you, you know, the, the sort of connection and attachment changes. And I think that, in most cases, that has been a, a, a positive thing. Oh, 100%. I think there's, there's so much, like, there's different aspects of the pandemic, but definitely that that component is a big one. And then when we talk about the cost of some of these people, as say, but it's going to cost money and things like that. But there's actually research, isn't there, that shows the GDP outcomes of women working actually really offset the cost of these. So, for example, the paid parental leave, um, programs for both parents and also then the early childcare um, investment as well. And I say it as an investment um, because mm. it's, you know, as you say, it's the first five years are the most important um, of a child's life. And I even know like watching my son and what he's learned at childcare, it's amazing. I, and I couldn't do that at home and, and getting that professional um, support for him has, has been amazing. But the economic impacts, and I know what a lot of politicians will say, oh, it's going to cost money and voters and things like that, but it can actually be offset, can't it? Yes, it absolutely can be. And this is where, you know, I, as I said at the beginning, I feel very lucky to have the job that I do because I get to advocate for policies that I know are, are such genuine winners on social measures but also economic measures that it makes my job, I think, really easy because so what we know very clearly is that paid parental leave that is shared between carers and parents is really really good for the health of children and if you've got the health of children um, being nurtured and optimized that is economically very beneficial because you, you end up saving a whole lot of money on health challenges down the track Paid parental leave is also really good for, it, it does, it is shown to improve the mental health of both mums and dads and the well-being of mums. So we know that paid parental leave, it helps mums physically recover from labour because, you know, there's just no way around the fact that having a baby is a physically transformative undertaking. And even if you're one of the lucky people who have a relatively straightforward pregnancy and birth, it's still a huge physiological adjustment. And so, you know, there is even just for the health case alone for mothers and babies, 
paid parental leave is a winner. It's the reason that countries started introducing it, you know, before the 70s because it is an investment in the health and well-being of children and mums. But also what we know is that when you give mums and dads the ability to share the care, it means that both parents are likely to maintain some attachment to the paid workforce. And that's good for our productivity because the more people who are working, the more people who are paying taxes, the, the bigger the economy grows. So paid parental leave, it is absolutely an investment. Um, you know, it's not a cost. It is an investment in um, the health and wellbeing, but it is also a productivity measure because, um, as I said, when you get parents to share the care, they both participate in the workforce, as opposed to what we have at the moment, which is a really pronounced gap that mums really don't actually ever return to working in the same numbers or at the same rate that they did before kids. Then when we talk about early childhood education and care, um, we've got, there are two very, very compelling reasons why investing in early education and care matters. The first is in the education component. So no one looks at um, public education in primary schools as sort of being some form of welfare. We recognise that that is an essential investment in the future of our country. Um, we all recognise public education is, is a, is, should be a universal good or service. And it's exactly the same for early education and care mm -hmm. because what happens between zero and five is the most richly formative time in a child's life. So if you don't, if you miss out on that early window, you can actually, those children rarely catch up. And at the moment in Australia, one in five children arrive at school developmentally vulnerable. And when they arrive behind, they rarely catch up. So, a and a child who attends even one year of quality early education and care the year before school, they're half as likely to arrive at school behind. So it is a magical silver bullet that literally sets children up for success. And the reality is that quality early education and care is good for every single child. There is no child that wouldn't benefit. But the children who would benefit with form of disadvantage, and they are in Australia still the children who are least likely to attend. And the reason that they're least likely to attend is because we've got a system that is incredibly expensive and incredibly inaccessible. It doesn't work well enough. And that means that we are missing out on sending these little children off to school in a position that they're ready to learn and then enjoy increased um, social, economic and educational outcomes over the course of their life. You know, if you are looking at the magic bullet, early education and care is it. And then even if you step back and you're not convinced about the education component, if you just want to talk about the economics, Having a high-quality, affordable childcare system is a critical piece of infrastructure that enables women to participate in work. Really, the way I describe it is that paid parental leave and quality childcare are the roads and bridges that parents need to get between work and home. And at the moment, because those roads and bridges don't really exist, it is generally mums who are left at home and it is much more difficult to move between home and work than it would be. Um, and so that's where with childcare investment, you get the considerable bump immediately because of the workforce participation rate for women increasing. But then also over the longer term, 
the return on investment from a child's perspective is huge. So at the moment, we get $2 back for every dollar we spend on early education and care. And for children in the cohort I described where there's any sort of um, disadvantage, the, it's upwards of 6 or $7 return for every dollar that you spend. That's huge. It, it, it is. It's huge. And it's the reason why even very conservative governments in Japan, for example, and also the UK, they have invest, they've poured a huge amount of money into the early years, not necessarily because they're, they're caring about the social outcomes for women, but because they are critically concerned about improving the educational outcomes of children. And if you, you know, we do have an opportunity before the age of five to get in there and set children up for success. And it sets them up for life, like, because it's just like anything. It's like, you know, healthcare, early intervention is actually going to help people long term. It's the same thing with kids. If you're giving them, as you're saying, the right environments and you're actually going to set them up for life. And when you think about the long term impacts that governments are paying out, you know, when they're, I don't mean to be derogatory here, but, you know, if they're on the dole or something like that, if they'd had the opportunities and given those opportunities when they were younger, they actually might be saving money down the track rather than, you know, so that that $1 spent on childcare could offset literally billions of dollars later in life. Yeah, so what is interesting is that um, there's no doubt that investing in a sort of a high-quality early education care system that's completely affordable is a considerable investment. So we already spend more than $10 billion a year on the childcare subsidy alone. And to, 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 to get to a system of universal access, we would be looking at probably a minimum of an additional $10 billion. But when people say to me, we can't afford that, I say, we're already paying the price for not having that. Because mm. research two years ago that the Front Project did showed that we spend $15 billion every year on late intervention. So that's all of the costs associated with, as you said, if we miss, if we miss that opportunity for early intervention when children are young, it just the cost grows exponentially as they get older. And that's so we are already spending that. That is money we are already spending. And we're already spending $10 billion on an early education care system. So the government has been spending more and more money each year on the subsidy. But what happens is every time they put more money into the subsidy, eventually the fees just keep going up. So while our investment is growing, what we haven't seen is any meaningful difference in affordability for families. We haven't seen any meaningful improvement in the wages of early educators. And we haven't seen any uniform quality increase in the outcomes for children. And I think if, if, if you look at those three measures, if you look at the, at the workforce retention, you look at affordability for families and you look at child outcomes, and if the system we have is not, develop, is not delivering on those three measures, then what is it delivering? Yeah, it's, and sadly, I didn't realise, probably shareholder returns with some of these companies listed on the stock exchange, which... For me, it's just how's this possible? You're supposed to be you're getting money from government and then you're listed, and but you're actually not putting enough in. And these, unfortunately, are some of the early childcare workers are some of the lowest paid workers in like Australian society. But they have, as you say, the biggest influence on our children. And I know from personal experience, the last two years during the pandemic, 
my childcare has been the rock in my son's life. The, the educators have been fantastic. They have been put through the absolute ringer of COVID and, you know, working under severe pressures and also at times got kids that are homeschooling as well. It's been just like the biggest stress, but in all the all the updates and things like that, they've been a forgotten group of people. And I know as parents, they've been put under so much pressure, but we're just not supporting them. They're not developing. And then, and then as parents, you're like, why is such and such left to go to another center? And I know when 12 months ago, a lead educator in my son's room left, she goes, I'm going for more money. I'm like, you know what? I don't blame you. I actually encourage you to do it because you've been so important. You're a good educator. It's just, it's sad and it's frustrating as well. It is. It's really sad and it's really frustrating. And one of the things that um, we know is that it's not, parents would have a hard time, and I would put myself in this category as well, parents would have a hard time describing exactly the sort of metrics that would make up a quality early learning service. You know, it's a hard thing to kind of define. This is the same in a hospital. It's not easy to say, right, a good hospital has to have X, Y, and Z, unless you're a public health expert. As parents, when we look at early education and care, I think most of us go with our gut. You sort of, there's a feel that you have, there's an instinct, you you pick up on a vibe when you walk into a service. Mm. So that's one thing. But I think the the uh, the main thing that parents would say is the biggest determinant of quality is the early educators themselves. Now, if you have got, if your child has got a good connection with one of the educators, it can be the difference between a seamless drop-off and a terrible drop-off that puts you and your child into a terrible place before the day's even started. And so we know, like even on a really basic level, we know that having continuity of educators is absolutely critical. You know, we, we know that even within the space of a week, there's going to be different educators and carers in the different rooms at different times. But you need your you and your child rely on there being some continuity because then that that educator and your child have the ability to build that relationship. The educator is building her skills every day or his skills, but we know it's sort of 99% of the workforce of female. Now, what we have seen, this was happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic has really accelerated it. And it's, you know, there's about 75% of the early education workforce are planning on leaving in the next 12 months. That's scary. There's always been a churn rate of about 30% every year, which is huge because that means you are losing not just the educator at this point in time, but we're losing an educator in five years' time who's got five years of experience. And the reason that educators are leaving the way that they are is because they are absolutely exhausted, as you said. They have found themselves on the front line of a pandemic but they're not, you know, at least with medical staff and nurses, there is a sort of, there is a premium attached to the work that they do. It's not, it's not a wild premium. And I would absolutely, you know, I respect the fact that nurses are calling for better paying conditions because they deserve it. Mm. But compared to early educators, they are paid a premium. Early educators have found themselves unwittingly on the front line of a pandemic because they had to keep turning up to work when we were all told to stay home, to stay safe, we wanted educators to be there. Educators are still, you know, children under five, it's the only cohort of Australians who aren't eligible for a vaccine. So they are taking on a greater risk every single day than the majority of us are when we are largely, you know, gathering with vaccinated Australians. The early educators do not have that. 
and they're not paid well and they're exhausted and they don't feel valued and they're leaving. And we cannot afford that because quality early education starts with quality early educators. Yeah. And as we say, like it's it's the early childcare schemes to help women, uh, you know, both parents' participation in the workforce. Like if you look at this systematically and holistically, there's so many different elements to it that actually all align. Um, and as what our government policies do, they look at them individually rather than actually um, holistically as parents. And I even like you speak to so many mums and, and families that go, oh, look, the cost of childcare is too high. So you know, and the scenario of, well, I'm only just going to work to pay for my childcare. Um, and I then say, well, please don't. There's so many more advantages to you working, um, even if it's just a small little component to it, but please stay there because also like the superannuation, the long-term career aspects and things like that. But it's sad when you've got people that are making the decisions because of the cost on on whether on how much they work. And, and so it is what you're saying. It's not so women do want to work, for those hmm. that do want to work, but sometimes those childcare costs, particularly, um, I know they're going to be changing the the um, the gap fees and um, the the ceilings in the next couple of months. But you know that's been such a restrictive element of you know ten thousand dollars. Once you hit that, you're paying full fee, and full fee can be you know sometimes upwards of two hundred dollars depending on where you live. It's just so terrible. It is you know so this is the thing that in Australia. It is. So families in Australia do pay some of the most expensive out-of-pocket costs for early education and care in the world. It's also why Australia has got, so as I said before, we have got the number one rank for female educational attainment in Australia. We rank 70th for women's workforce participation. And that's according to the World Economic Forum. They do a global gender gap index. It's a very um, sort of thorough report that's been going and they look at um, about 156 countries they look at the gap between men and women on four measures being education health political representation and um, workforce participation and Australia we have had the number one rank for education since 2006 when they started this and every year our workforce participation just gets further and further away and that is an anomaly because generally speaking education and educational attainment and workforce participation track in a similar pattern because if women are educated and skilled they tend to work more but in Australia that doesn't happen and that is explained to a significant extent by the fact that we do have some of the most expensive childcare in the world and then we've also got an unusual taxation system that does punish higher income earning women so working more than three days a week is often you know, women face an effective marginal taxation rate of between $0.75 cents and $1.20. Now, if someone is, is facing a $1.20 marginal taxation rate, that means they are paying to work. Yeah. And we have got, you know, I think you would be hard-pressed to find many business leaders who would say that they think a 75% taxation margin isn't punitive. It is punitive. And that is what, because of our policies at the moment, that is the reality that working women face because of the way household income is calculated, because of the way the childcare subsidy is calculated. And it punishes women to the extent that they buy out of work, not because they want to, but because there is just no point continuing. And then, as you say, you know, families are forced into making decisions that work right now in the short term. But longer term, there is a huge price to pay, and this is that motherhood penalty again, of stepping out of the workforce for a considerable period of time. You know, because if 
if your partner loses their job, if the marriage breaks down, if something happens and you do not have the capacity to earn an income and you do not have, you haven't had the sort of capacity to accumulate super over the course of your life, it is very difficult to get to a retirement age and have any savings. And that's why women over 55 are the fastest growing group of Australians who experience homelessness. homelessness yeah. And it's been that way for about 10 years. And it's because women are asked to spend their lives caring either paid and if it's paid it's very low paid or it's unpaid care work and then at the end of their life poverty is the price they pay for that oh it doesn't it doesn't actually paint a very good picture at all it's um it's pretty terrible well look it is but let me say this i am adamant i'm determined and i am totally and utterly convinced that we can improve this picture and that we can actually really dramatically pick up the pace of change. So there's no reason why a country like Australia should have the gap we have between women's education and their workforce participation. There's no reason a a country like Australia should accept one in five children arriving at school behind. And the thing is, the solutions are not unknown. We know that Expanding paid parental leave and making it um, equitable and and adequate would dramatically improve outcomes. We know that introducing a quality, totally affordable early education would dramatically pick up the pace of change for women, but it would also really improve the lives of children. Mm. And is there a role that business can also play? So obviously there's the element of government policy, just like in the environmental space and the sustainability space at the moment, if, if government isn't there just yet, um, businesses are starting to make the change. And I know that the big end of town, the corporates are actually increasing their parental leave, but obviously 80% of Australian businesses are SMEs um, and may go, oh, we can't afford it. But what can we do for all businesses to really support you know, working parents? And I'd say working parents across all the stages as well and both mothers and fathers. Mm. Okay, so here's the thing. There are lots of things that individual employers can do to support working parents. Now, having adequate and equitable paid parental leave, I know that a lot of small businesses would immediately assume that it's something that's completely unaffordable. But the reality is there are small businesses who've done the numbers and and find out that it's possible to make it work. You know, that that it actually, ultimately, you are better off the cost of recruiting and retraining is so expensive that if you've got someone who is talented and knows your business and knows their job, it is probably worth doing what you can to accommodate their parental leave. You know, it is worth looking into that. But but one of the things, and this is, I suppose, the challenge that I issue to businesses, we know that some of the biggest corporations are offering very, very generous, equitable paid parental leave schemes. And they are looking at, you know, offering flexibility and, you know, giving working parents the ability to design their jobs in a way that means they can manage their paid work with their caring responsibilities. And I think that's fantastic. But also, I think what we need from businesses and business leaders, big and small, is to join parents in asking for these systems changes. Because, a company can have or a business can have the most generous paid parental leave scheme in the in the world. But if that family doesn't have access to quality early education care, that means they're not paying to go to work, 
they're going to leave because mm. they can't they can't afford it and that's beyond the scope of an employer to influence now there have been over the years there are some employers that have have got some form of childcare you know on their premises but it, it only works for a fairly narrow cohort of employers that have got the sort of the the workforce numbers as well as the property required it's i wouldn't describe that as a sort of system solution but what i think and what i would implore all leaders to do is to actually get up to speed with where Australia ranks, ranks in terms of the policies that it's operating, offering parents. Have a think about how those policies impact the people in your team, the people in your organisation, and think about speaking out about it and, and actually saying to government, you know, which we have seen in recent years, you know, I mean, business really stepped into the same-sex um, marriage campaign. Mm. Um, a lot of them stepped up and said, you know, this is something that matters. It matters to it matters to their customers. It matters to their clients. It matters to their staff. Early education and care and paid parental leave are similar social issues. Um, and I think that, you know, being accommodating in the way that you run your business and the way you sort of manage your employees is always going to be smart business. But we can't get the kind of change we need without there being a bigger systems change. And so I think it's sort of, I think that's the opportunity for lots of us to engage and say, this makes sense for our country. It is good for women. It is good for children. It's good for the economy. Um, and it's time for an upgrade. Yes. And to be, it'd be that groundswell of support. And so, Georgie, if you had a crystal ball of what you'd like to see in the future or even um, what you'd like to see from other countries as well of some good examples, you know, say from Norway or from Germany or anything like that, where would you like to see Australia in five years' time? Well, so last year the Parenthood put out a piece of research called Making Australia the Best Place in the World to Be a Parent. And the reason why we chose that frame is because we cannot say we're a country that cares about children if we don't care about the people around those children. So we, it is only when parents are supported that children have the opportunity to thrive. And that's why at the parenthood that is the frame that we choose because we know that if we became the best place in the world to be a parent, we would also become the best place in the world to be a child. And both of those things, in my mind, are were the aspirations. And I actually don't think they're beyond us. Australia has been world leading in certain areas. We're world leading in educating females. Why can't we be world leading in being a parent? And the piece of research that we did, we commissioned Equity Economics to undertake, identified two key policies that would be um, transformative. And it is one year of paid parental leave for parents that is shared. And it is um, at replacement wage with super. That is best practice um, in the world. There is not a, there's not a more, there, there are longer schemes available in some of the Nordic countries. They offer longer than 12 months. But if you want to get the sweet spot between getting the optimal health outcomes for mums and babies, but also getting the optimal productivity bump, 12 months shared between parents is where it's at. Um, and then having a totally sort of, free, quality, inclusive, early childhood education and care. If we had those two policies in five years, Australia would be an incredibly more prosperous country. We would have, our future would be 
far more secure because we would have the next generation being set up for success. Um, We would have women with the ability to earn an income, to live safely, to to be respected, to have an opportunity to create equity. So they are the two changes that I'm here for Australia to achieve. You know what? I really hope we do actually, you know, let's catch up in five years' time where we can celebrate that that's actually been achieved. So that would be sensational. Now, how can people join the parenthood? Um, So you can find us on social media. So we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok. Um, So you can find us on all the socials. You can visit our website, theparenthood.org.au, and there is a tab there where you can join and you can be on our email list. And, yeah, we'd love to have you. We are always on the lookout for members to join. Um, We're always looking for families that are willing to talk to the media about these issues and how it affects them. We are ahead of the federal election. We are sort of mobilising our members to go and talk to their local members about the issues that are impacting them and their family. So there's lots of different ways to get involved, but simply joining and adding your voice to our calls is is probably in and of itself very, very powerful and useful. Sensational. And also there's a petition that's going around at the moment, isn't there, with the Mindaro Foundation? Yes. So the Mindaro Foundation. Mindaro Foundation, uh, yeah. Yeah. So the Mindaro Foundation are running, they run a campaign called Thrive by Five, and the parenthood is one of the members of that campaign. And the Mindaroo have put out a petition just recently with a couple of key asks. The Parenthood has also got an election campaign petition called Parents Up. And the good news is that there's a lot of crossover in the things that we are asking for. And I'm a signatory to both petitions. But really, we're looking for systems change for families and parents. Yeah, fantastic. Now, something I ask everyone who comes on the show, what do you do, Georgie, for self-care? Oh, that's a very good question. So my favourite quote about self-care is from an American called Brianna West, and she writes that self-care is not chocolate cake and bubble baths. It is creating a life from which you don't need to escape. And I always come back to that in that I know that self-care can't be something that I just latch onto one Sunday and, and tick that box and say, right, I had a bath, so now I'm going to be good for the next three weeks. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So for me, self-care looks like setting up my weeks so that I get time to, I, I find walking is essential for my mental and physical health. So I try to walk four or five mornings a week between six and seven. And I find that that gives me an opportunity to sort of clear my head and start the day hit the family responsibilities and get to work feeling okay. That's probably like the most practical thing that I do. It's the walking. But also I think what was so difficult through the pandemic was that we were all sort of unwittingly thrown into scenarios we needed to escape but couldn't because of the various restrictions that were in place. And that was very testing. Um, And so I'm sort of very conscious of saying to particularly parents of primary school age children because the research shows very clearly that the mental distress suffered by parents of particularly primary school age children has been devastating and that is a really legitimate concern. And so if you are feeling completely beside yourself and burnt out, it is not surprising, you know, that, and that I think that's what, one thing that we have to be mindful of with self-care is that there's there's only so much as individuals we can do 
when we're in those situations like the pandemic forced us into, it was brutal. And so I think this year a lot of us need to be very gentle with ourselves and with our children. I think as employers and as business leaders, we need to be really conscious of the mental burden and sort of toll that the last two years have taken on 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 all Australians. Yeah, it's definitely been huge and and profound and and who knows what next wave of whatever it is next. So um, as they say, this this thing isn't yet over. So there's still lots to play out. Thank you so much, Georgie, for such an informative and an engaging discussion. I've really enjoyed it and certainly learned a lot. And it's great to have someone such as yourself advocating so publicly with our politicians for this systematic change um, that we need across all parts of, of for, pa- for working parents to really help, you know, advocate not only for kids, but for mums and also then the greater good of society in Australia to make it be that great place to live is what we know it all is, but also the society and social norms around it. So thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on. I always love having these conversations. So thank you for inviting me. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you for listening to the Working Mama podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast catch-up. I invite you also to join the Working Mama community on Facebook and join in the conversation with other like-minded working mums. Please also feel free to contact me on any of the Working Mama social channels. Remember, Mama is M-U-M-M-A or website www.workingmama.com.au. I would appreciate you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues, especially those that are parents managing the juggle. And I would really appreciate if you had to take the time out to leave a review of the podcast. I'll be giving a shout out to select people that do so. So stay listening and you might be one of them. Thank you and see you next time. Have a great week. Thank you.